This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. It's your club and this is your show. Two wins from two for Manchester City to open the new Premier League season. And for the first time in nearly 100 years, City are top and United are bottom of the top flight in England. Chucking a pair of draws for title rivals Liverpool and this term probably couldn't have started any better, could it? So before things start to get difficult, let's continue to bask in the good mood for this week's episode of the Blue Moon podcast. We'll be looking back over the comfortable 4-0 win against Bournemouth. Plus we'll preview Sunday's trip to Newcastle with the host of the Athletics pod on the time, Taylor Payne. The Premier League turned 30 this week, so we'll be looking at why there's a case that City are the most interesting, not the best, not the biggest, but the most interesting team that's existed in the competition. The author of Premier League Nuggets, Richard Foster, will be on the show later to talk about some of City's quirks in recent years. I'm David Mooney and joining me this week is City fan and esteemed company Stephen McInerney. Hello. And Goal.com City correspondent Jonathan Smith. Hello. Sounds good, that, doesn't it? That intro. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> it's, just, uh, it's just incredible, isn't it? City top, United bottom for the first time in 100 years what, 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 what a way to start the show yeah what a world let's, we live let's in stays, hey? let's yeah. stays. Let's, uh, well I was going to do that to, to finish the first part but since you brought since you've uh, since you've honed in on it John uh, it's the first time that a Premier League round of games has ended with uh, City top and United bottom uh, the last time it happened uh, thanks to Opta for digging this one out was uh, the 29th of November 1929 uh, that year City finished third they were 13 points off the top United finished 17th but unfortunately they were safe two points above the relegation zone uh, um, just to kind of put that into context, City had been at Main Road for six years by that time. Um, it happened before the Times ever printed a crossword. It happened before Tesco <laughs> ever opened a, a store. Uh, the highway code was yet to be be written, so none of that none of that existed. Uh, in the years between, thanks to Stat City for this one, uh, City played four thousand two hundred and seventy six matches. Um, John, just bask in it a bit more. City top, United bottom. <laughs> uh, well, I think you have to. I, I mean, uh, going through those decades. Uh, as you know, under United shadow, one, one of the things I'm enjoying most is patronising United fans in the way that I was patronised for such a long time. Yep. <laughs> you know, I'm, sure, I'm sure you'll stay up. <laughs> yeah, but but also you know you need to do this. You need to you know this is what this is what happens at City. You need to start doing things like that. Have you, you know, thought about, have you thought about sticking with a manager? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've got that every yeah. day as well at the moment. There's um, a lovely gentleman doing some work in our house at the moment, and he's been here for a couple of weeks. And like, what? He's a United fan, and obviously big blue here. But he's, every time I see him every morning, he looks further and further into a pit of despair at football. It's great. I love it. I absolutely love it. It's like, is, is he there he, now? Do you, does he want to come on? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, he's, he's downstairs actually doing some plastering. And, uh, so, but yeah, but it's it's just a pain. Like you like, it, it feels weird to feel. It, it honestly feels like a twenty-year flip, you know, reverse. And he, he's convinced they're in a relegation battle, and I, I just find it hilarious. I'm there trying to be nice to the, the gentleman doing some work. I'm there like, I find it funny, mate. I'm really sorry. I find it absolutely hilarious, and I always will do. Long mate, continue. That United v Liverpool game on um, on Monday night. I mean, there is no wrong result, really, is there? From that one, whatever happens. No. Well, it's a relegation battle now, isn't it? Let's be honest. You know, <laughs> I'm not, not going to lie. I'd much rather. I, I, I genuinely still, even at this early stage, I'd like to see Liverpool's bad start to the season continue a lot yes. longer, just to just to just to shore things up a little bit from a City point of view. Um, let's start with that Bournemouth game then, because um, everyone's very quick to criticise. I think with uh, with Erling Haaland, because uh, it was a great start to his his Premier League career against West Ham. Uh, this week, apparently, uh, John, he was crap. So, are you bored of this yet? This flip flopping. Well, I mean, he, he is a story, isn't he? We can't get away from that. And the fact that he only had eight touches, I think, you know, it is worth talking about. I know it's 
if only to say in the great scheme of things, it, it didn't actually matter. City won 4-0. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not interrupted the brilliant football that they're playing. Um, but, it is, you know, it is a low figure and it is worth looking at exactly why that was the case. I mean, for instance, it would have been uh, nine touches and a goal if Foden had squared it to him. Um, one, one of those eight touches were in, was an assist. Much of his work was done away from the ball, which open lanes and attacking op- options for City. So I, I think it is it, it's a sort of figure that's going to take a, a, a headline. Um, but to explore it, I think it's worth saying, you know, it's, it, it's not interrupted City. They were still fantastic and, and Haaland played his part in that. Yeah. I mean, Stephen, that's that's the thing, isn't it? Um, it is two successful passes. One's a kickoff, the other's a, an, an assist. It, it's very <laughs> easy to kind of focus in on all of that. But the team, as a unit, were working perfectly fine. I think the best way I could put it is that, did anyone really notice during the game? Yeah. Know? like I mean, it's, it's very, it felt very... Um, uh, a very hindsight-led in terms of everyone was looking for a narrative, really. Uh, I think it's always going to happen, you know. Um, it, it probably is or also relatively necessary, you know, uh, because it's going to be brought up at some point. Um, but I guess, you know, it, during the game, I, I didn't notice it. Um, I, I, I was just waiting for him to get a chance or whatever, and obviously he did, unfortunately, you know, miss that chance towards the end. But it didn't feel like there was a Haaland problem during the game because he got the assist and because he was very visibly, you know, uh, taking defenders uh, with it, him, which it? he needed yeah. to. So I, I couldn't say I really noticed it afterwards. I was just sat there watching a very con- content and very complete Manchester City performance. And then afterwards, uh, it, it turned out that Haaland had a stinker. I was like, what? <laughs> what do you like? If that's, that's the thing for me. I mean, sometimes you can tell one someone's having a few touches um, and not playing well and sometimes you can tell when someone's having 600 touches and playing awfully at the same time you know so I think this idea that lesser touches therefore equals bad game is a very reductive argument so I guess that's how I feel about it really because you know, you can have four touches and potentially have one of the best cameos you've ever had in football. It's that, it's that possible because that's how weird this game is. So for me, like, look, it, I think we expected the odd game like this where Harlan would, against a low block, kind of sort of struggle. So I, I'm not worried. And it, to answer your question, I'm already uh, definitely a little bit bored of it. So yeah. it's it's just a narrative. There has to be a narrative. And I understand it to an extent. Harlan attracts headlines like he attracts defenders. So that's fine. But as you said... We could have had an assist and a goal in ten touches, and the, the, the flip side of that would be that's an incredibly, incredibly um, clinical man, you know. So yeah, I mean, John Aguero. We used to talk about Aguero barely doing anything in games, and then popping up with three goals, two goals. Like it's it's the same sort of thing, isn't it? If you if you just look at the number of touches a player's had, like Stephen says, it's reductive. It doesn't it doesn't the the stats aren't there to to make the narrative. They just support whatever narrative you want to build, don't they? Yeah, it's it the. I guess the issue is, you know, how does it affect City, him having eight touches? Um, and it doesn't. You know, they were still destructive. They were still creating lots of chances. Um, and even Haaland himself was dangerous. You know, he should have had a goal. Uh, I, I feel I feel a little bit sorry for Phil because we've, we've all sort of focused on that goal a little uh, that chance a little bit. And in fact, he didn't square it. Um, you know, it's, it was, he, I think he was perfectly within his rights of a shot. Um, and if it goes in, I guess it takes a. No one really says he should have squared it, um, but you know that was a certain goal that he would have had. Um, there was one chance in the first half, which was a ball over the top, and this, 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 the space is so tight because Bournemouth were defending deep, and he, you know, he, he does what he does. He buys the centre back out of the way, and it was a you know slight miscontrol away from getting another big chance. Um, his last touch was a shot 
when there were seven Bournemouth players in the box and just Jack Grealish and Haaland between them, they've created a shooting opportunity. He's got the assist. Um, so, yeah, essentially it doesn't matter. And Stephen, the, the, the thing is, um, I think it was De Bruyne after the game talking about how when he scored his goal, which was a, a beautiful outside-of-the-foot opportunity, he looked up and he was he said he was looking for Haaland, but he was occupied and then the space opened up for him to shoot. So Haaland played his part in that goal. That's it entirely. Like, um, when's the last time you remember KDB running one on one with a central defender like that? You know, like, um, that that goal doesn't happen without Haaland there, in my personal opinion. It really genuinely doesn't because, you know, I, I tweeted semi jokingly that he's so big he has his own, you know, orbit Haaland. And he does, like, d- defenders are drawn to him and, like, the space through the middle, like, you just don't really see that, do you? You know, against City these days. And I do think it's as simple as that. And um, it obviously, be, you know, we want Haaland more involved in terms of touches, but. Going back to what we were saying before, involvement doesn't necessarily mean being on the ball and movement and presence. That's a big thing, and uh, defenders are drawn to him. And yeah, uh, that KDB goal becomes for it. And look, if if Haaland gets twenty five tappings this season um, and has a total of about you know about two hundred touches across all those games, and but then you see space for De Bruyne, Foden, Morris, who really cares? You know, yeah. I, I just genuinely don't care at that point because well, I'll take another you know thirty four nil wins if it means Haaland gets five touches a game. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's talk Bernardo, Stephen, because uh, we now know that he's going to be staying. Um, what, 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 what was your immediate reaction when you found that out? Uh, kind of a, a mixture of relief <laughs> and joy, and I can't. I, I don't know. I, I don't. Know, I don't really know. I just, uh, to be honest, like, I, I did genuinely expect it. Actually, um, I'm not just saying that in hindsight. I, I did feel like it was one. It was one step too far for the economic levers of Barcelona, um, which is something I never thought I'd be saying. But uh, <laughs> it, it did feel like a little bit too far, and felt like they were. Um, all the stuff coming out for Barca where they were like, oh, we're confident we can get him for about 40 million quid or whatever it was, something stupid felt like, you know, like a bit of a, um, bit of a fever dream kind of territory. But yeah, absolute relief. Um, I, I think City have handled the whole thing really, really well, uh, personally. I think it's been a very mature process of how they've, they understood his wishes, but I think they've shown a little bit more steel than some people probably expected. Uh, even myself, I, I, I always felt a little bit that they were um, probably unfairly, actually, a little bit too kind to Barcelona. But I, I like the fact that we've put a stance down of a certain price. And it seems now as well, actually, that the certain price probably comes with time caveats as well, which is good news as well. So for me, happy, relieved. Um, and ultimately, I think it's probably... Uh, the right call as well for City to, uh, yeah. to put the feet down in terms of the price because he's he's just too good and I, I felt relaxed when we heard that Kevin De Bruyne quote and also when he was nominated for the Ballon d'Or because that that you know you can't get a cheap Bernardo when the guys up for Ballon d'Or it just didn't seem pl- uh, plausible. Yeah, I mean, John. The other thing of in all of this as well is, I mean, Stephen's mentioned the the Barcelona finances. Like, even the time left in the window, like City would have needed to go out and get a replacement. It just it felt so unfeasible in the time scale that was there, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Um, but Barcelona have kind of got this habit of, you know, pulling things out of the bag, finding money that no doesn't one knows it, about. That doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, um, and I, I, you know, and you know, throughout the window, um, there's been no offer from Barcelona. Uh, there's just there's been a lot of noise, a lot of talk, and you know, it's understandable that you know a lot of Southern European footballers see Spain as where they want to play so it's it's understandable if he might be interested in that Um, and obviously it was you know some of the it's not been shut down completely when you you see Pep in his press conferences saying you know we hope he stays we want him to stay we love him 
I, I'm uh, interested in that though, John, because you think about how Barcelona have been talking about about Bernardo and Pep's reaction in in the press conferences there. Now think of like like compare that to when uh, Bayern Munich were talking about Leroy Sane and like Guardiola was apoplectic at times. Yeah, I think one of the things with with the way Guardiola works and why he is successful is the way he treats his squad, and he, and he does say if you if you don't want to be at City, if you're not happy, you can leave and. It's all right, well and good saying that, but you need to carry it through, which is why Gabby and Raheem have left and Sinchenko have left. Um, you know, I, I'm sure they still have a, still have a lot to, of potential to have an impact in this squad. But you know, that's that, that's how Guardiola treats his players. Um, and you know, you know, I was thinking about that same with the goalkeeper. There's there's times where last season where you thought, you know. You're going to play Zach Stefford, and uh, you know Guardiola's answer was, "Yeah, of course, he's our number two goalkeeper, and he's here to play cup games." And that—that's how he treats his squad. He's very honest about it. So, um, so if Bernardo is is thinking about leaving and as a potential offer, then he would have been allowed to go. So, it, it is kind of quite a grown-up way of, of doing it. Um, I, I think there. Was, I still think possibly within that you could say right, okay, it's it's a fortnight until the window shuts in uh, in the way that Borussia Dortmund kind of did in the past, where with big transfers where they've they put a deadline on it and said if if this person's going to leave, it needs to happen by this date. Um, but you know, ultim- ultimately, uh, City have put the trust in in Bernardo and said, you know, if uh, this this is how it's going to work. Uh, and, and Bernardo's responded with a sort of kind of very mature way he's dealt with City. So uh, it, it, it seems to have worked out for the best. Yeah. Um, I mean, th- there was, though, Stephen, the worry that uh, on Saturday when he applauded all four stands and then gave his <laughs> shirt away, um, like as he's trotting off the pitch, and then, then he tweeted afterwards about the reception that he got, and I was like, you know, something we don't hear. <laughs> yeah, it did feel that way, didn't it? Um, ever the optimist. I, I did hope it was just more him... Uh, hedging his bets a little bit, you know, because obviously the love he got when he came on and the constant songs and so on, it would have been a bit odd not to acknowledge that. Um, I was just hoping it was that. Uh, I didn't know, obviously, but I was hoping it was sort of, I could be going here and I've also had a really nice reaction, so I'll do the right thing just in case because you, you don't want to be the guy who disappears without getting a chance to, to, to say goodbye, do you? Or at least have a little moment. So, um, I it, yeah, I, I did have that faith, like everyone else. Um, but obviously, it turned out he was just genuinely appreciative, which is yeah. really, really nice. And, you know, I do actually think that might have helped a little bit. Not that, you know, that was going to change anything. But, look, obviously, when you're looking to leave and football fans can be really fickle. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if a small part of him was a little bit apprehensive going on the pitch, you know, coming on thinking, oh, obviously, I don't, he wasn't expecting to be booed or anything like that. But he probably was playing on his mind a little bit because he's been very vocal. And obviously, the reaction that he got, uh, you know, the first home game of the, after the, the summer break, it must have been just, you know, made it feel an awful lot easier to say yes. I'm, I'm yeah. sure the weather helped as well, if we're being honest, you know. He, he's a bit but, different though, isn't he? Because like, we know he'll give his best, whatever, whatever yeah. the situation. Because like, he wanted to leave last summer and then he gave his best all season. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I guess, yeah, that's it entirely. I mean, I think the way it's handled, as we discussed, is it's been very mature and from him as well. We know he's going to work really hard, and I guess I guess the fans were essentially saying, "Look, you're one of us anyway. Don't worry about it, man. You know, essentially, whatever's going to go happens, happens. But we want you to stay. We love you, um, and we know you'll work hard. And I think he just really, really appreciate that. And it definitely made it a lot easier to take, didn't it? And 
you know, playing out there, City winning in the glorious sunshine. And um, it probably felt like home for him, you know, which is yeah. very nice. Yeah. Um, John Ilkay Gundogan is the new captain. Um, what are your thoughts? I mean, it's it, does that make it... He, I, I, he always feels to me like he's a player that has been a little bit undervalued by City down the years and not really kind of been one of the first names on the team sheet in any of the seasons that he's been at, uh, been at City. Does this kind of little mini promotion now make him a bit more of a shoe-in to start, do you think? Oh, well, I don't know about that. Uh, you know, Fernandinho was captain last season and that didn't make him many further up the pecking order. Um I think I think you're right. Perhaps Gundogan has been a little bit undervalued in, in terms of, uh, you know, he doesn't have those sort of blockbuster moments. Uh, having said that, he had the biggest <laughs> blockbuster moment of all. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he, he's, he, he, he's a big influence um, around the dressing room. He's, you know, he's taken his time to, uh, on occasions, given team talks. Uh, you know, he's he's very thoughtful, very intelligent. Um much loved by everybody. Um, but it, no, it doesn't affect, I don't think it affects the thinking in terms of selection. You know, Pep's got some really good midfielders to choose from and he'll pick who he thinks right for the right occasion. You know, who's in form, who's showing it in training. Um, so, you know, he's up against De Bruyne and Bernardo and Grealish and Foden. It's a, it's a tough ask and, you know, if he's, if he's not right on it, he won't be in the side. Um, but you know, Gundogan is there for the fight. He's he's a great player, and he's up for. He's not gonna, he's not going to shirk his responsibility. He's going to give everything every week, and yeah, he, he, he'll, he'll be in the side when he deserves to be in the side, and that'll be a lot. Yeah, I just wonder, Stephen, if he's if he's deserved to be in the side more than he has been in recent years, and we're only really now kind of seeing the impact that he can have. Because I th- I think kind of low key, of, of all the headlines have been on Haaland and, and De Bruyne how they've started the season, but Gundogan's really started it well. Oh, he's been brilliant. Uh, and to be honest as well, he's playing with um, uh, a confidence that comes of age, I guess, is the way I'd put it. And, you know, you have a seniority uh, to your game and obviously he's approaching, you know, the the, the latter, age, latter stages of his career. But you can sense that he knows exactly who he is. You know, he knows exactly what his qualities are and he's developed uh, his game uh, over the years. And he's found obviously that goal scoring touch to his game that he, he developed a couple of years ago when he got like 18 to 20 goals, whatever it was, something like that. But yeah, I think he, he looks very content with who he is out there and uh, with his own situation. And um, he's, he's potentially, yeah, underappreciated to an extent. Um, he's, he's obviously a world-class footballer. He's just an absolutely immense footballer. And I do actually wonder if Guardiola has plans for him this season to use him a little bit more because obviously the Haaland changes the dynamic, doesn't he? Entirely. Um, and maybe uh, maybe with more space occupied that way and so on, maybe he fancies someone who can... When you think last time we had a striker, um, David Silva was so important, not just because he was David Silva, but because he was playing those passes. Uh, the, the pass before the assist, wasn't he? You know, the one yeah. to Leroy Sane or to Sterling or whatever, who then would cut it back for Aguero to tap in. And I do wonder if he's looking at Haaland now and thinking, well, who's the closest we've got to David Silva? And it is Okai Gundogan, you know, in those pockets, in those spaces. De Bruyne is the assist guy. Um, he's, uh, Bernardo has become at Manchester City a little bit more of a box-to-box midfielder, where the closest thing you're going to get to someone, to David Silva, in, in this squad, in my opinion, is Oka Gundogan. Uh, and he's been absolutely immense uh, so far in those first two games, you know, essentially floating around in that slight inside left channel, uh, uh, linking up, of course, whoever's out on the left or Cancelo or Grealish or whatever. And of course, linking up with Gundogan in a way that his game's developed over the past couple of years. So I do think Guardiola 
um, admires those qualities because it is different. Bernardo doesn't really do that same thing. Bernardo's brilliant, don't get me wrong, but he's a different kind of brilliant. So, um, yeah, we could be seeing Gundogan. Like, I think that there was a general feeling that Gundogan was on the pitch because of Bernardo's situation. But it genuinely could be that Gundogan was on the pitch because he's better for this, uh, what, we're, yeah. what we're trying to bring. And um, so I do think Gundogan's going to play an awful lot of football. And right now he's on the team in Merritt. And even with Bernardo staying, it doesn't mean I'm expecting him to see him against Newcastle. I'm not, to be honest. Um, I think Gundogan's there because right now he's suiting what Guardiola wants to do. And uh, look, I love Ilka Gundogan. I think he's phenomenal. Um, I, I, I think when we look back, he's going to be one of our greatest ever signings for what we pay for him and what he's brought to this club in the moment and the quality. And yeah, a phenomenal footballer. Um, and yeah, I think the way he started the season has just been so, so encouraging. I do think, John, it's um, because of the stage of the season we're at and City have got one game a week and, and they're not playing every midweek as well. It's very easy for us to sit here and say, well, how is Bernardo going to get back in the team? When actually the truth is, you know, they've not even they've not hit the point where they're getting two yeah. games a week and thing and, and players are getting tired and knocks and this sort of thing. We we focus a lot on um, kind of like like if Gundogan starts against Newcastle and Bernardo doesn't, it's like three games where Bernardo hasn't started. And the truth is, it's just that they've only played three games and there's been a week between each one of them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Um, but also, I think you know those those two games that City have had have been against teams that pack the defence, uh, and obviously, you know, Gundogan's was the change against Aston Villa when City was struggling to score against a packed defence, and, and and Pep explained it as he's someone who makes the right runs. He knows he knows exactly where the ball is going to be. He knows when uh, to arrive. That was the line, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, to arrive. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think you know West Ham have always played. David Moyes' sides have always played like that against City, um, and Bournemouth were always going to play that way. Oh, coming to the Etihad, Newcastle may be a little bit more open. It, it might be that Bernardo comes into the side for that one because he needs a, a slightly different player. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that I think there'll be a lot of games this season where which will be that philosophy from the away side to. To try and pack the defence, and and, and Gundogan is is one that Pep sees as, as someone who can make a difference in those games. Yeah. Um, while we're on the midfield, John, um, we talked a little bit about De Bruyne already. Um, that, obviously, nice finish, nice assist, that sort of thing. But like, it's a general performance. Um, I can't remember a season where he started this well. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, I, it, it just gets better and better, and I think he's benefited from a few weeks off in the summer. No. Uh, international tournaments, you know, uh, following him on Instagram, he looked like he had a, a pretty good summer. He said nothing, uh, didn't he? He said he had no training whatsoever. <laughs> just said he thought, Joe, you know I'm not going to do anything. And I love that. I love that because he's reached the age where I was like, I'm too tired. I've got kids. So I'm just going <laughs> to do nothing. Good on him. Yeah, I think, was he? In yeah, but I do, that. I, I, I do that. And my, my physical state drops <laughs> even worse. <laughs> but I think I think he was in Colombia. He was at Nathan Aki's wedding. He just looked like he had a really fun summer with his family. He just looks like a happy person, generally. That's good, isn't it? It's good. It's nice to see. Yeah. And it's, it's, we forget that they're um, a human sometime. And, like, you know, like, he, he needed that, I think. I think he just needed to rest his muscles, get in the water and chill and on the beach somewhere. And he, he looks like a, a very refreshed man. I, I felt sorry for him last year because, obviously, you know, I know he's a millionaire football and life's great for him, but like, he, he he was apparently paying, playing in an awful lot of pain, you know, because of his face, you know, because obviously after that... um the, the forearm smash of Rudiger, which is, was forgotten very quickly, which still annoys me to this day. Um, with that, apparently he was feeling an awful lot of pain in his face. And I can't imagine how, do you know when you've got a toothache and it literally takes over your life? 
Yeah. Like face facial pain in general is so hard to ignore, isn't it? Because it's just right there around all your senses. And I can't imagine like how difficult that must have been starting last season. Obviously, he still played his way into form, but he just looks like a guy who's in no pain anymore. Very happy, very fit, and he's, just, he's been flying out of the blocks. I think he's going to have a very, very memorable season. Yeah, he got COVID as well last season, which can't have helped. So it's just like no. one thing after another. Uh, I mean, John, the, the way City have started, we talked about um, Liverpool's bad start to the season uh, with two draws earlier in the show. Um, the way City have started and the way De Bruyne has started, it, it feels like they really need to capitalise on this, put a run together now. And it feels like De Bruyne is the one to kind of kickstart that happening. Yeah, he's always the one who leads from the front on the pitch. Um, and like you say, City are just in a... They just look like they've clicked. They look like even from the first game of preseason that they were up for it. And then De Bruyne in particular scored two goals in that game. They'll get beat um, on Sunday now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like you know, when he's in this when he's in his form and is everything's moving as it should, you know, he's he's had problems with his ankles for a few few seasons. And he always whenever he gets a kick on it. You always watch him and hope that he, he gets up unhindered and gets on with it. Um, but he's just he's just one of the best players in the world. That's the end yeah. of it. Easy to watch, isn't he? Yeah, um, simple as that, isn't it? Uh, Stephen, let's finish the first part of the show with a look at uh, a couple of the youngsters because, uh, well, especially one youngster because um, Guardiola put Rico Lewis on uh, on the. It was uh, he was wearing number eighty two. I have since found out that it's not the highest squad number that uh, <laughs> that's that's ever been in the Premier League. I think uh, from Paul Bias at the Athletic, I think it's James McAtee with eighty seven. Um, but it's still like Rico Lewis still eighty two in the eighty second minute. It was a nice little quirk. Um, what 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 did you think when Guardiola put him on? Because it's not the sort of thing Guardiola does. I, I like it. I actually like it. Uh, to be honest, I think there's more than a little bit of pragmatism about it too. If we're being honest, I think there's a bit of sentimental sentimentality because he's a young lad, you know, make his debut and so on. Um, but I also think it's necessary, genuinely necessary. Um, look, look, it's going to take an awful lot of, to go wrong. Unfortunately for Rico Lewis, for him to be involved a lot this season, like you know, we're gonna. I think there's many, many players ahead of him in a regular right back slot. Um, even though he's the right back, it's gonna be. We all know it would be John Stones. We know he'd even play Ruben Diaz there. He'd play Calvin Phillips there, or whatever. But until you have to play him regularly, but this squad it, it isn't blessed with you know great depth, unfortunately. So um, I, I do think Guardiola was thinking. This guy deserves to be looked at a little bit, and uh, once again, you know his family. I'm sure were watching, so he did the he did a nice thing there. But you got to look at these players because it, who knows how quickly the, the squad could run away from us. And before we know it, we're, we're looking down at these young players. And at this this stage of the season, with five substitutes now actually a regular thing, it would be, in my opinion, it would be naive not to uh, start to normalise these young players around the squad because one sort of underappreciated thing that during the summer that we not many people really thought about too much is that we lost a lot of experience from the academy which sounds weird to say because they're young players but you know a lot of players that have been around the first team for a while the likes of obviously CJ Egan Riley uh, Romeo Lavia McAtee and so on Tommy Doyle people like that um, they're just not here so we've got a whole bunch of youngsters essentially apart from a few like Mbete and Wilson Asbrand and so on who have just had not much first team exposure so to speak so I, I think it's important to do this um, and I also think it's a sign that you sort of trust him a little bit as well you know, Guardiola really values players that don't make mistakes, basically. I think that's why he liked Egan Riley a little bit. Even though Egan Riley 
wasn't the city's level. He's just a very good six out of ten kind of player. Good. It doesn't let you down. He's solid. And Rico Lewis as captain, I've watched him quite a bit for the 18s, and he's just a really intelligent footballer. You know, um, technically excellent. He's versatile. He's even played at left back, so I can see why Pep likes him. Um, <laughs> he's played there before, and he's he's captain teams once again. So he's got a very kind of solid side to his game where he doesn't make mistakes. So I think Pep's rewarding him basically for being reliable, and also because it sort of makes sense to do it. Yeah. Um, John, do you think we'll see more of this sort of thing with five subs now? Yeah, I think it does. You know, if you're falling up with 15 minutes to go, it does give an opportunity. You know, it was, we saw it with Phil Foden that, uh, you know, he, he, he used to come on in the 90th minute, stuff like that. He can perhaps go a little bit earlier. Um, you know, it's interesting that I, I, I think fullback is perhaps a position where you can go a little bit younger, even for Pep. You know, I, uh, as Stephen mentioned Romeo Lavia. I, I watched him and thought, well, he's absolutely superb player. You know, he had everything around his game apart from experience. And I just thought that holding midfield position is is one that Pep's talked about as being absolutely crucial. And I just thought, yeah, realistically, R- Romeo's never going to get a chance for three, four years uh, as good as he as good as he is. Whereas I think fullback, you've got a little bit. Less responsibility. You you're on the attack. You've got a, you you're playing on the on the wing, so you're facing only in one direction. Um, so your choices, your options of passing are a little bit more uh, obvious. Yeah, guaranteed um, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Where I, the the only caveat I would say is that obviously <laughs> he's reinventing fullbacks. Uh, you know, <laughs> they, they are. Having said that, they do play. As you holding know, midfielders, yeah. Well, I, I've seen Carl Walker, you know, in the game against West Ham, Carl Walker was to the left of Rodri in the centre of midfield. Um, you know, I, I, I sadly finished my career as a full-back, going, going further and further and back uh, from starting as a striker. And, you know, left-back's pretty straightforward position. Uh, and I'm not, not sure I could cope with the idea of, no, you've got to go and stand over there when we've got, when we're... Just, uh, <laughs> John... John, That's John not what I do. mate, mate, I've seen you play. I know you. I, I, I know you can't cope with that because I know you can't cope with standing in the left back position either. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, let's. Uh, I, I mean, I, let's not talk about the blunder in the last game that I made that we played together. So uh, yeah, um, let's look ahead to the uh, game with Newcastle. Now uh, we're going to start by hearing from Taylor Payne, the host of the Athletics Pod on the Tyne. I've been speaking to him to get a view of how Newcastle have started the season. It's been pretty decent. I mean, two clean sheets in the first two games, and people are. People underestimate how how difficult that is to keep two clean sheets in your first two games in the Premier League. It's a, it's a it's a big ask. Um, I think the main thing though is just the general feeling around the club is completely different now to what it has been in the past because we always started the season with just this sort of overbearing sense of dread hanging over the club. Uh, what could happen this season? What could go wrong? What could Mike Ashley possibly sell uh, <laughs> that he hasn't already? Uh, will we have light bulbs when we return from uh, preseason? That kind of thing. Um, but it's 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 just generally been quite sort of calm and and settled. And and you know Eddie Howe seems to have a pretty good grasp on what he needs and what he's doing. And and we're just sort of letting him get on with it. And it's you know it's it's refreshing. It's really yeah. refreshing. It's nice. I was going to say, last time we spoke to you, we, we didn't actually speak to you last season with uh, the way that things fell, but the, like the, yeah. the, the last time we spoke to you, things were looking quite desperate under um, uh, Steve Bruce and, and Mike Ashley. Oh, I mean, God, uh, what, how, how has the mood changed? Um, well, let's, let's, let's just say we're all sitting here pissing ourselves at Man United's fortunes at the minute. <laughs> so the mood, 
has lifted considerably. I mean, it's you know, in all seriousness, it's not just it's not just the fact that we've got a different coach. It's the entire feeling around the club and around the city itself. Before we felt like we were treading water, like it was a zombie club. It wasn't actually going anywhere. The its sole aim was just to survive and stay in the Premier League year after year. Now, some clubs might be happy with that and some clubs might think, you know, well, what else do you want? There's some clubs who are a lot worse off than you. Uh, and yes, there is. Yes, there are. You know, there's, there's clubs all over the country who are a lot worse off than Newcastle at the time. Um, but what is the point of being a football fan if you don't go and see your team try at least and do well or win a cup or win a, you know, win a game of football even. Yeah, do something. It, it becomes yeah. a bit, yeah, just do just do something, just do anything. But I think for a long time, Newcastle weren't prepared to do anything and, and it got pretty bleak for a little while. And I think a lot of people kind of walked away from it or decided they were better off spending time with their families or, you know, you know, just putting the head in the oven or something instead seemed a lot more sort of uh, a lot more interesting or a lot more palatable than watching Steve Bruce's Newcastle. So it was sort of, it wasn't great. It wasn't great for a long time, but the, the, the whole mood's changed now. Yeah, it reminds me there was a time in uh, in the mid noughties where where City fans who had season tickets were choosing to do other things on a Saturday, and it's a, the point the point <laughs> yeah. where you realise that you're paying to actively not watch this team is a is a quite a grim place yeah. to be, isn't it? Yeah. Um, how's how's the transfer window? But if I'm if I'm not mistaken, this has been the first transfer window where you've where you've had the uh, the backing of uh, the new owners, isn't it? So you've 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 been able to go well, out and, and do some business, is that? We had the new owners in January as well, so we uh, we were able to bring in the the players that were needed to, to keep us up and keep us in the league because if we hadn't have done that uh, we would have went down last season without a shadow of a doubt and bringing in the likes of Kieran Trippier uh, and Matt Target uh, and Bruno Guimaraes who's just got magic in his boots that lad um, but bringing in those players was what the club needed at the time this, this window it's been a little bit different um, and I think there's a little bit of confusion when I read about Money bags, Newcastle United, they've got this, they've got that. They're the richest club in the world. They're going to buy this one. They're going to buy that one. Buy, bear in mind, none of this has been said by anybody at Newcastle or any Newcastle fan. Uh, it tends to be, you know, from other parts of the media where this this sort of nonsense comes from. Yeah. Um, and I think we have to remember that this is a slow burn. It's going to take an awful long time. It's totally different to the way things were when, for instance, Man City got took over uh, and they were able to go out and, and, and essentially have a blank checkbook and, and buy the players that they needed going forward. Um, it's going to be a slow build and it's going to be it's going to need patience and it's going to take time. So you do have to look at who's available and who you could get on a cheaper deal or who might be coming towards the end of that contract. We're not signing superstars. Uh, we're not signing, you know, big name players. We are signing players who are right for the job, right for the club and who have the right mentality coming in. Uh, and people like Nick Pope at £10 million. I mean, the guy showed on on Saturday. He, he kept Brighton out on his own because our defence were having a bad day. He, he He's, uh, you know, he's worth it. He's worth that sort of money. Um, Matt Target did a great job for us last year on loan and he came back permanently uh, and I don't think I know a single Newcastle fan who thought that was a bad idea he, he proved himself on loan and then you know again we didn't spend an awful lot of money on bringing him in permanently so these are the deals that have to be done at this stage in the club's development and, and going forward you know we're still gonna there might be the odd player who pops up someone like Bruno or somebody like that who you know okay well let's let's chuck a bit of money on it and see what happens 
but I think the club are playing uh, playing their cards very close to their chest, and they're just going to take it each each window at a time, you know, because the money that is there isn't just for now or for the next window; it's for four or five windows ahead in the future. Yeah, um, I mean, it's I'm interested in Eddie Howe as well because mm. um, I mean, to, towards the end of last season, uh, you lost two games in that running, City and Liverpool, yeah. which is like, I mean, if you're going to lose two games, they're, they're the kind of like the ones you really. expect, yeah. Um, and that that form seems to have pretty much carried on into the start of this season. Um, how how's he changed things? He seems to have brought in a different mentality. Um, players who maybe weren't playing at their best or weren't realising their potential suddenly, uh, I'm thinking of the likes of Joel Linton, for instance, suddenly seem to be re-energised with a belief that they actually can do a job in the positions that they're playing in. Um, he's just sort of brought in a new culture into the club of hard work, of you know preparedness. Um, and you know we don't hear stories anymore of players having three days off in the middle of the week and, and the manager swanning off to Portugal for a golf holiday with his pals. Uh, it's what you you don't want all that. You know, it's it, this is a serious business. And, and I think finally we've got somebody who takes it seriously and he's he signed an extended deal. Uh, we don't know. We don't exactly know how long that's for. It hasn't been announced yet exactly how long it's for. But as far as I'm concerned, the work he's done so far has been absolutely stellar. He's done a great job since he came in. Uh, and hopefully the form will continue into this season. But we have got Liverpool and Man City next. So that's... Uh, that might be difficult. A good barometer for where you've moved on from the end of last season, I guess, really. Um, Absolutely, yeah. The interesting thing about this game, I mean, it, it's slightly different to the end of last season because uh, at the end of last season, you were coming to the Etihad. This this one's at, at St. James's. Yeah. Um, uh, Eddie Howe used the last one as a little bit of a barometer, a free hit to kind of see where Newcastle mm. were at to play. Um, what do you think he'll do this time around? Um, do you know what? I genuinely don't know because we came out against Nottingham Forest swinging uh, and we were at home. And then we went to Brighton and we kind of relinquished a bit of the football, but not nowhere near as much as what we used to. It'll be interesting to see how he does this because when Arsenal came to Newcastle uh, at the end of last season, we pressed the life out of them and we basically battered them into submission over 90 minutes and ended up beating them 2-0. But I don't know if you can do that to City. I don't think it's possible. I think they're too good. I think they know how to beat that kind of play and they'll they'll get around the press far too easily. Um It'll be an interesting one. I think the game's won and, and lost in midfield, to be honest. Um, and if Joe Linton and Bruno and an, another, whoever else is in there, be it Joe Willock or uh, young Elliot Anderson, maybe, or somebody like that, it's it's going to be won and lost in there, depending on how how much control of the game we let City have. Uh, uh, that'll be what that'll be what dictates the outcome, I think. But. God, you don't know. Your guess is as good as mine, mate. He could he, <laughs> he could throw everything at it. He could throw the kitchen sink at it. You don't know. He might say, sit on the edge of our box and let's play on the break. I genuinely don't know. But the one thing I do know is that he's, he's going to have prepared for it properly. Um, he's going to have looked at every single thing because the man's an absolute workaholic and he's there till 10 o'clock at night most nights, uh, still grafting away. So I know for a fact that even if we lose to City, which I know for a fact there's a very, I mean, you know, you know, there's a very good chance we will lose to City because they are City. Um, I know for a fact we'll be in the best position we can be to play that game, and it hasn't always been the case. 
You see stats pop up all the time about clubs and players, and you want to know that exact thing about City. There's an answer. Statcity.co.uk Want to find out all of the players who played alongside club legends like David Silva, Sergio Aguero or Vincent Company? Or maybe you'd like to know which team found it hardest to score past Joe Hart. You can find out City's record in every competition, at every stadium and under every manager. Just go to statcity.co.uk and browse away. That's statcity.co.uk Now you've uh, you've mentioned Bruno a couple of times. Um, I'm, sens- I'm sensing the, uh, the the kind of the 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 start of a great relationship there. That with bloody him. love um, that bloke. Yeah, <laughs> bloody um, love him. Who else is that? Who, who's likely to do the damage? If it's not him, who's likely to do the damage to City? Um, it depends what mood Alan St. Maximin's in. Um, if he gets kicked a couple of times in the first ten minutes, he will roll around and stamp his feet and bang his hands on the turf and and generally fade out of the game, which is what he does uh, if he's he's not getting his own way. If he turns up and he's on one and he fancies it and the crowd are behind him, he he could be dangerous. Um, He's got pace and abundance and skill, uh, but it's just as it has always been with him and with Miguel Amiron on the other side as well. It's just that final ball into the box. Um, I'm hoping Miguel Amiron might have a point to prove after Jack Grealish's horrific uh, slur against him in the the celebrations at the end of last season when he told, was it Riyad Mahrez he told he'd been playing like Almiron? Did you see that? I missed this completely. I, d- I didn't know there was oh, beef yeah, going was on. Bit, I, I love a good beef as well. It was Jack Grealish was basically, I think he was pissed on the bus after after, <laughs> you, after the celebrations, which is, you know, isn't, isn't Not completely unheard of yeah. for Jack Grealish, is it? Um, and he said that, uh, Riyad Mahrez, I think it was either Riyad Mahrez or it might be Bernardo Silva. You should have uh, you should have came off because you were playing like Almiron, and we did not like that as Newcastle fans. Oh, you know that you know the winning goal this weekend, <laughs> don't you? Now, <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, the thing is, like we know Almiron's not the best player in the world, but he's our player. And if you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna put the boot in, and you're gonna put the boot in on one of ours, we're gonna back him to the hilt. But um, <laughs> Almiron's been all right. He's he's. He, he did really well in pre-season. He scored a half full of goals in pre-season. He runs his bollocks off every single game. He does not stop running. But again, it's the same thing with some maximum. It's the last couple of passes or the last pass. He, he he has a right foot, but he only uses it for standing on, you know. Um, yeah, we'll see. And Callum Wilson as well. Callum Wilson's a, a, a really good footballer, but he needs the service. He needs the balls into the box, and he, he's you know he's a he's a between the post striker, and he reminds me a little bit of the way Ian Wright used to play uh, back in the day. Uh, he's very much a you know in the box between the post and the, and the penalty spot. Put the ball in there, and, and that's his uh, that's his bread and butter. But if you're not getting the ball in the box, he hasn't got a chance. Yeah, well, Taylor, let's uh, let's finish with a score prediction. We've got a charity bet coming up a bit later on. Um, All right. I'm I'm terrible at it, so I like to give mm. my uh, predictions over to the guests. So, uh, what score are you having for this one? <laughs> well, I'm rubbish at these, but I said we were going to be Forest two 0 and we did. And then I said it was going to be a draw against Brighton, and it was. Um, uh, well, you're on a good run of form, and we've we've had two wins in the first two weeks. So go on, see if you can see if you can get this one right as well. So I think I think it'll be a difficult game for Newcastle, and I think City will. Uh, come away 2-0 winners. Please support the show by becoming a backer. Patreon.com forward 
slash blue moon podcast. That was Taylor Payne from the Athletics Pod on the Tyne. Uh, now, Stephen, we've talked about City stepping it up week after week from uh, the last few weeks in the, uh, the start of the season. Uh, this kind of feels like the next test, if you know what I mean. Newcastle were in pretty good form at the back end of last season. They seem to have carried it on at the start of this as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, Newcastle, obviously a club that everyone's paying an awful lot of attention to. Um, they play some good football. They've had a decent start as well. Yeah, I think they've got a uh, draw and a win, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, they've yeah, had not, a good start. Not, con- yeah. not conceded yet as well. So Yeah, well, there we go. I mean, that's going to be um, a really interesting game. And um, I think, to be honest, we've had some interesting tests so far. I thought West Ham away was, you know, a big test. And uh, we, we came out of that smelling of roses and born for home. Yeah, comfortable victory. But yeah, this Newcastle game... Um, it's it, this is the one that I've been paying attention to as well after West Ham because after that we've got a run of very favourable games I would say until the Spurs game so yeah I mean I'm expecting a difficult game I do think we have enough and I, I I mean I was paying attention to Newcastle against Brighton and Brighton did um, Brighton probably felt like he should have won that I reckon they had a lot more of the ball than Newcastle and um, I'm expecting it to be the same for City uh, I'm hoping that you know Newcastle, as much as they've improved and so on, they still haven't quite got the quality to step to City because look, I, I don't think they're any better than West Ham. Uh, and I think West Ham still, you know, even though obviously West Ham was the first game of the season and so on, but I, I do think uh, City should be able to give Newcastle some problems in the way that uh, Brighton did a little bit, but didn't obviously have the quality that City have got. Yeah. Um, John, I'm interested in the defence for this one because Stones came on for Diaz towards the end of the game with Bournemouth. Um, I'm starting to wonder if, uh, if 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 that partnership might be rekindled for this game just because, uh, I mean, I do rate Nathan Ake, but I, you know, if Stones is fit and Diaz is fit, they're the two that generally start, aren't they? I would expect Ake to continue, to be honest. I mean, he started the season really, really well. Obviously, there's a lot of speculation about from Chelsea in the, uh, in the summer and that was close to... Um, and he's he stayed at City. I think he's been always been seen as the fourth choice centre back, and, and probably still is um, by everybody. But you know, it's up to Ake to to change that opinion. Um, and he will be. I think you know. I think he'll be given a chance to say, you know, go go and go and challenge for Laporte's spot as as the first choice left side left sided centre back. Um, and he's done nothing to suggest that he shouldn't be in the side. So, yeah, I, I mean, obviously Stones, Diaz, and Laporte have been superb for you know for his, since uh, since Diaz joined, um, and that's made it hard for Ake. Um, but you know, this is his, this is his chance. He was there in America, did really well. So um, yeah, I, I would I would expect him to start. Yeah, um, it feels like every year, Stephen, one of Stones or Laporte seems to miss out on the start of the season and then have a real fight on the hands to get in. It was like in, in 2021, it was Laporte. 21-22 was Stones. Um, so it's kind of like whoever gets the first chance this season gets the chance to, to kind of nail down the position, don't they? Yeah, it, it does feel that way. And to be honest, um, it's, it's quite for us, isn't it, as fans? Because the quality that they've got, I mean, I think it's also a highlight and how crucial it was that we kept Take, you know, in the summer. Because there's such a consistency there and having that defence, having four centre backs that we trust, it's just it's so empowering. And I, I kinda like it because I think basically if, if one of the Portal Stones are back in the team in a month from now, I'm gonna guess it's because they're playing well and they deserve it, you know, because I don't think I honestly don't think Pep's gonna drop Ake unless he has to. Unless, yeah. you know, unless the port or Stones or whatever is excellent in training or, you know, if it's an injury or suspension or whatever. But it's such a fierce competition for places and, and as we know, the dressing room is happy. They're all popular, those players amongst the squad. So it's it's healthy. It's really, really healthy and it's it's 
I don't think we've, I can't remember ever in my lifetime having a bunch of centre backs that we, we trust this, you know, in this, this strongly together. That four of the, I mean, all, I think we all agree that all four would play for more or less any team in the world, apart from maybe one or two exceptions. So, like, that's just, um, it's quite remarkable, really. And, uh, like, Stones and Laporte, they'll be, they'll be kicking themselves at the, the you know, those stones that wasn't in training in the US and obviously the port is injury, so there's nothing you can do about it. And those injuries came at the end of a, you know, a Herculean effort at the end of the season to get us, get us to the title. But um, it's just the way it is these days, you know, yeah. you can't even get injuries without losing your place in the team. And that's, but that's obviously great for us as fans to watch that because the quality is just immense. Yeah. Um, let's turn our attention to the, the top end of the pitch, John, because uh, we've had Mares and Grealish against Liverpool. We had Foden and Grealish against West Ham and we had Foden and Mares against Bournemouth. So uh, what combination do you think uh, Guardiola would uh, would like to go with for this one? Could it could this be the one where Bernardo comes in? Don't know. <laughs> but, uh, good answer, good solid answer. <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I did sort of speak a little bit about Bernardo before about maybe this is the game where... Um, yeah, where it's a little bit more open and they might need the, the, the hard running of Bernardo. Um, it might be a little bit more space for him to operate. But in terms of Mares, Grealish and Foden for those three spots out wide, don't know. You're just going to say two. You're just going to say two from three, and that's well, leave me with that. I, <laughs> I think they've. I think they've all started pretty well. Um, I'm not sure any of them have said I'm undroppable yet, but none of them. <laughs> They've all been when they've had the chance of of, of con- contributed um, and made an impact. So, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's not it's not one I can answer. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I don't know either. That's why I asked you, <laughs> um, Stephen. I've not even mentioned Alvarez in this because uh, he's he could come in and uh, he could play alongside Harland. He could play one of the wide positions. Just don't know. Yeah, he won't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't think he will personally. Um, I think he, it, I think Foden's going to start. Uh, pers- I know, obviously, there was a lot of debate around, did he get hooked because he didn't pass or whatever? But I, I think Guardiola, I don't think he would drop him from this because Foden's had a good start to the season. Um, I, did, I think Foden's going to play. It's just if he's going to be on the right or not, isn't it, really? Um, I have a feeling he might play on the right with Grudish on the left um, with Morris on the bench for this one. Uh, I, I just think he'll. I think, I, I've got a feeling he'll really value what Grealish brings in in a way day at St James's Park. You know that that needle that he, he's so good at getting, like uh, drawing attention to people. And um, I can just, yeah, I can just see him, especially, uh, yeah, once again where we're going to have have to keep the ball an awful lot, and Grealish obviously will, will help with the field and so on. And yeah, I, I think he'll be Foden on the right, Grealish on the left. It's just a hunch, but I've got a feeling we'll see that. Yeah, he started yeah. the season very needly, even for even for Grealish. I mean, the way he wound up um, was it Smith? Was it for, yeah. uh, for Bournemouth? Was it's sensational, really. I'm not going to lie, John. I was on I, like I sit on the other side of the of the ground from that, and uh, I was in the direct sunlight for the entirety of the 90 minutes, and this happened on about 85 minutes. And so all, all I could think by this stage of the game was, I want to go home. I'm too hot. Um, <laughs> so, like, I I don't know what happened. What happened? I, I just, I don't know, he, he beat him a couple of times and he got wound up and then there was a ball, there was a short pass into, into Grealish where Smith went through him a little, well, not through him, but, you know, he sort of <laughs> was late arriving for the ball and pushed him in the back. I think he gives out, you know, I think he gives out yeah. a bit. I think and he then, does. And then he did the the the, um, the mouth, over, uh, hand over his mouth 
he's obviously saying something. I can't <laughs> confirm whether it was the same thing that he said to Stefan Savage. But... Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to uh, leave <laughs> leave that one to the imagination. I think, unfortunately, um, Stephen. Final question on this game: uh, After seeing Liverpool drop points in their opening two games, knowing that they've got United on uh, the Monday <laughs> night, it's 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 it is really important to stamp uh, authority on the league early on, isn't it? Because yeah, we, we've seen we've seen in previous seasons when a team has an imperious start it can make whoever's chasing it just make it feel like a, an insurmountable challenge you're absolutely right i'm just laughing because it's just mad on it we're here three games in the season we're talking about the title race already i know uh, which is sorry, obviously how I we so are sorry <laughs> no no you're absolutely spot on as well i saw a good piece the other day i think it was on the athletic actually where they were talking about how statistically i don't think it was actually it was on the analysts or that where they were talking about how statistically it's very unlikely already for liverpool to turn it around which is crazy um but this is the this is the levels that we're living through now right now where you know four points already feels massive and it's crazy because there is another 100 and god knows how many points left to play for but yeah if we if we win this game and look united do us a favor look i, I honestly feel like if we win this game united does a favor and get a point or something like that liverpool fans will be resigned already and that sounds absolutely crazy but that is really really empowering you know especially given the weird fragmented stage of this season that we're going to have and we have to pay attention to these games and this start because it's going to be very hard for any team with the quality that both teams have got to try and uh, claw back a slow start to the season. And uh, yeah, this this could I, w- I would love it if we went into the World Cup with a, you know a several point lead because it just feels it feels like we've got enough at that point, doesn't it? You know, I, I'd be very surprised if anyone's going to completely implode. The, the teams are just too good, you know, to completely implode in the second half of the season. So yeah. I mean, right now, uh, given how good both teams are, any little chance to get a psychological advantage, you've got to take it. Yeah, I would love it if we beat them. I would love it if we beat them. We've got They've, they've got to <laughs> go right, to Old Trafford right, and Kevin. get something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is a potential, of course, that Liverpool might not be City's main rivals this season. I, think, I quite like Lucas Spurs. I think they've built a good squad. Um, they, weren't, they weren't great against Chelsea in the game, but they got a point out of it. So maybe it's... Uh, Maybe Liverpool aren't the, aren't the team to worry about this year. Can we see Spurs I, getting over 90 points? Because I, I don't think they can. I think Spurs getting over 80s. Yeah. I was thinking the same with Arsenal, John, but again, I, I, don't, know if I, I don't know if they get over 90 points. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah it's, a, it's a big step for them, isn't it? To go from where they are now to, to challenging. Um, but I, I think he's built a, he's building a decent squad. Of, he's got a lot more depth there, uh, Conte. And obviously they've got... Kane and Son, they've got match winners. Um, Defence is a little bit better. Yeah, maybe it's a stretch to say they're potential title rivals, but... um... We'll see. We'll, make, make, yeah, we'll see. We'll see yeah. towards the end of the season. Uh, right, well, no pressure, everybody, uh, but we've got a 100% success rate on the predictions for the Premier League so far this season. Uh, played 2-1-2, and it means we've raised £120 so far for the Man City Fans Food Bank Support Group. They're helping the Trussell Trust support people in Manchester living in food poverty. William Hill is giving each of us a £10 correct score single on City's games, so let's have some predictions for Newcastle away. Uh, we'll start with Taylor, um, who predicted a 2-0 City win, which is 6-1 to and £60. Steve? Stephen, what are you having for this one? Um, I'm going for, because 2 nil is taken, 2-1. Uh, 2-1 one. One is 8-1 to one and uh, £80 if you're right. John? I've gone 3-1. Three, 3-1, one. Three, one, yeah, good old favourite, that one. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the, it's the scoreline that wins the most on the charity bet, so you never know. 11-1 uh, and £110 if you're right for that one. Uh, remember, you've got to be 18 or over to gamble. Prices can change, and for more on responsible gambling, you can have a look at begambleaware.org. 
Now then, uh, this week the Premier League has been celebrating its 30th anniversary. I might be a bit biased, but I think there's a case that City could be the single most interesting team that the Premier League has ever seen. To assess it, I've been speaking to Richard Foster, the author of the book Premier League Nuggets, to talk through City's fascinating last 30 years. You've got plenty of nuggets there, and um, you know they're all different complexions, uh, and clearly the last 10 years you've uh, broken quite a few records uh, and obviously it's been quite nice to basically um, overshadow that lot from the other side of the city so always always <laughs> you're, you're you're definitely um, you're good news for me because the more nuggets the more I get to write about so yeah keep going yeah, the uh, I mean the, the the records you mentioned it's it's largely dominated by the the Guardiola era, um, but like most wins in uh, in a Premier League season, most home wins, most away wins, most consecutive wins, that sort of uh, record. It's very Guardiola heavy, except in the most home wins uh, category, there is a Roberto Mancini season in there as well. Yes, um, and you know you talk about a bit of bias. I'm going to have to throw in a bit of bias as a Palace fan. That of course your most consecutive wins was 18, wasn't it? And and who disrupted that run, David? <laughs> it was Palace at Selhurst, wasn't it? Yeah, nil all at Selhurst, and um, you know we've we've also cropped up a couple of times where you uh, say you had the most wins, didn't you? 32 in a seed, twice, 70, 18, 18, 19. I think you only dropped, in 18, 19, you only dropped three points at home, didn't you? Yeah. And and I think that was to us, was it? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm whispering this. I don't, I don't want to wind you up. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, if you can see the goal like Andros Townsend, you kind of go, okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, no, I heard a good story about a Palace fan who, as soon as they saw Townsend lining up, thought, right, I'm going to go to the loo because I know where that's ending up. And <laughs> he missed it. So one of the best goals we ever scored, he didn't actually do it. He was in the ground, but he said there's no way he's going to do anything apart from blast it into Rose Z. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, he nearly did, but the net got in the way. So uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. City. They also have a season of uh, the most goals in the Premier League, 106 from uh, 17, 18. That was the year when uh, they had the the 100 points team and and just battered yeah. everybody else. Uh, but I think one of the things I find most interesting about the the kind of um, 106 goals is that it's it's obviously a tally that can be broken and will be broken in the future. Um, mm. But it, but City are consistent. Are one of the teams that consistently get over a hundred goals in a season. There's not many teams that have got that have done it. I think City are the only team that have done it more than once, aren't they? I think you're probably right. Liverpool obviously did it um, a couple of seasons ago, and I was actually thinking about this that even breaking. You know, if we look at the points, as you say you're the only team to ever get a hundred points, and I think. I mean, it's going to be difficult to emulate that. I, I can't. It might happen once again, possibly in the next five or six years. But you know, if you look at actually the number of points scored, so there are only there are only ten occasions where clubs have actually got uh, ninety points. Um, sorry, twelve occasions. I'm afraid Man United have done it a few times, but you know that was years ago. Um, Chelsea and Liverpool have done it three times as you have, and then Arsenal did it once. So, you know, the bar is just getting higher and higher. And as I say, you keep churning these things out. And, you know, us writers are just grateful that you're you're providing us with plenty of uh, content <laughs> to talk about. Yeah, I like one of the things I like about uh, the 100 points thing is... Um, 
like it's it's not um when Chelsea had the the, the Premier League record for points at I think it was 95 um from from Mourinho's yeah. time um when they had that record there was a, it was a case of uh well somebody will will beat that eventually there will be somebody that gets more than 95 but because 100 is is triple figures city will always be the first to 100 not like if somebody comes along and gets 101 102 whatever it's fine because city are still the first and nobody now remembers that chelsea side as being the the, the team that held on to the points record for so long do you know what i mean yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, anyone who breaks a record that is established in, you know, that's there. And, and as you say, you can rival it, you can match it, but you won't ever be the first. So, yeah. you know, if, you know, let's say City win every single home match, you know, 19, that will be, that will be a stretch. Because, you know, as you say, you, you hold the record for 18 home wins, but you share it with... Chelsea, that Mourinho side, Liverpool and Man United. So, you know, the, there are records that are going to be established for, um, you know, a long time and uh, and breaking it for the first time is, is a really important thing, I think. So it's it's definitely a milepost that yeah. you, can, you can have and, you know, others can follow, but when you're the first, it makes a big difference. Yeah, and I think the I mean the other thing that I think plays into City being uh, the most interesting is the uh, is the title races that they've won because they've they've won the title by the both the biggest and the smallest ever margin in the Premier League. Um, I mean everyone remembers the smallest because of the the Aguero yeah. moment. The, the biggest was uh, was that hundred point season. They're two iconic seasons. Absolutely right, and you know something I point out in um, my book Premier League Nuggets. It, it, you know nineteen points it's a it's a big and and also the beauty for you is that both those the 19 points and the goal difference were over man U. so you know <laughs> you, you, you've got the perfect storm there i think also worth throwing in here you're one of the few sides sorry to be a bit of a downer to get relegated on goal difference do you remember that oh yes yeah the, the, 95 the, the, 96 the, the best bit about that uh richard is that um they they believed they were safe. They uh, they started wasting time by the corner flag. Yeah, they were they in thought, the corner, yeah, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they thought results elsewhere had gone their way. Well, in fact, everybody was drawing, and it just meant the table stayed exactly as it was. <laughs> was that um, was Ball manager then, Alan? Ball. Yes, Alan Ball. Yeah. Alan Ball, the manager, because there was uh, there's that great image of Niall Quinn sprinting from the dugout to say to Steve Lomas, "Listen, maybe maybe yeah. we might want to score another one." <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. And Niall Quinn does crop up, doesn't he, again, in terms of um, City's Premier League history, um, being the first player to ever get sent off yeah. in the Premier League, which was away at Middlesbrough. And obviously the circumstances behind that were interesting because Paul Lake got clattered by somebody and we know all his injury problems. So it was Niall Quinn basically gaining revenge and, 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 and who can who can blame him. Um, only time he got sent off in his whole career, actually. I was going to say most mild-mannered man in, in Exactly. Uh, in, I mean, in football. he's just such a nice guy. And, you know, I've heard, you know, I've spoken to people about him since and he's just a lovely chap with no hint of malice. But, you know, to, def- to basically gain revenge for someone taking out a player who was injury-ravaged, I think, um, I think it's fair enough. I mean, I'll, I'll give it to him. 
Yeah, let's. Uh, I mean, let's let's stick with the goal difference thing because there's a there's a stat from uh, 2003-4 that is is again one of my favourites that again plays into City being an interesting side. Uh, they're the team that's finished lowest with a positive goal difference. They had a goal difference of plus one. Uh, they finished sixteenth mm. in 2004 when uh, when Kevin Keegan did his best to try and take them down that year. <laughs> yeah, again, um, my bias is going to come out here because I sort of looked at it and I think over the last. 15 years there's only been one other team that has even been in the bottom half with a positive goal difference and that just happens to be Palace um, <laughs> last season with with the plus four goal difference finishing 12 but if you think about the the whole thing here is you know that actually when you look at it you're quite right City are the lowest with the positive there are quite a few before sort of 2010, two, sorry, 2001, but it's getting increasingly light. When you look at goal difference, the the massive gap and the chasm between the top and the bottom is, as, as we know, getting wider and wider. So you look at the goal difference of those bottom half teams and they really are in the negative by quite a long way, yeah. the vast majority of them. So, you know, it, it plays to that. And I think it's also interesting, as you say, City finished 16th with a plus one in the first ever Premier League season. Norwich finished third. They had a negative goal difference of <laughs> minus four. How do you do that? I mean, they, you know, remember, I don't know if you remember, but they were top of the table for most of the season. They were, they were actually at the top of the table, I think, the most of those three clubs that were vying for the title, so yeah. United and Villa. Um, how, do you, how do you get to third with a negative... It's just mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. I, I can tell you how City did it in, in 2004. Yeah, yeah, they, um, yeah. Basically, they, they beat Everton 5-2 on the final day of the season. <laughs> so they, they just they just whacked in a load of goals to in a dead rubber game that, uh, that that bumped the goal difference up on the last day. So I just wonder if Norwich had a massive like 9-0 somewhere in that season. Yeah, they lost. I know they lost really heavily to Blackburn about 7-0, which didn't help them. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean... It, I, was, I quite like goal differences. It's an interesting um, thing to look at. And, you know, as I say, over the last few years, the sort of combined goal difference of the top two, so you and Liverpool, basically, is so far ahead of, you know, the, the, the others. It, it is ridiculous and, and likely to grow. Yeah, now let's uh, let, let's look at um, kind of the all-time Premier League table because um, City are the highest team in that all-time table that haven't had thirty seasons in the top flight, and that, obviously that plays into the success that they've had in the last few years. Um, but it, it, I find it interesting how that's balanced, given that in the early years of the of the Premier League, I mean there was a spell where City were rubbish. City were really really bad at yeah. times. Um, so it kind of it, it's it's odd to see how it's averaged out to, to City. I think City are sixth in the all. Time uh, Premier League table. Um, they've had 25 top flight seasons. They're above Everton, who have had 30. Newcastle and Aston yeah. Villa, who've had 27. West Ham have had 26. They're be- they're below City as well. So it's, it it really does average out how City have done over the over the course of their their Premier League kind of uh, lifetime, and it shows the different eras that City have had. I guess it does, and you know you you have suffered relegation a couple of times which you know some of the newer fans may not remember but you know if you compare it to Everton as you say Everton have been an ever present you've played almost 200 games fewer than Everton I think it's 190 games fewer 
you got 61 more points. So that sort of suggests that, you know, you are accelerating up that table. I think you've got a way to go to catch up with Tottenham, who are fifth in the table. But, um, yeah, if you took a, a dichotomy of it, you know, the, you take your first, say, dozen seasons, you wouldn't be anywhere near the top 10 in all time. But obviously now you're shooting up the table. Yeah, Richard, that's fantastic. Um, whereabouts can uh, people buy the book if they uh, they want to have a look for it? Uh, it's available uh, through Amazon. It might even be in the odd bookshop, actually. But um, because the Premier League uh, happens every season, I have to update it every couple of years. So there's the revised version now, uh, and I'll probably be doing another revised version at the end of this season. So I'll be including plenty more city nuggets in there i'm sure this is the blue moon podcast follow us on twitter at blue moon podcast that was richard foster talking to me about some of city's uh, nuggets from the last 30 years um we're going to finish with some audience questions get them in on twitter for next week at blue moon podcast uh, is the way to do it best but you can also email us fill in the form on the website bluemoonpodcast.com that's what david s has done uh, now before we go any further with this i need to say that this email came in before city signed sergio gomez it was actually for last week's show but we ran out of time so i didn't use it um he says our city success despite rather than because of the recruitment team do you think that they're actually doing quite a poor job or am I being dramatic because they still haven't brought in a left back now as I say this was before Sergio Gomez came in equally though Gomez is not necessarily going to be a first team regular so we'll uh, we'll have to kind of wait and see how that one pans out uh, David continues City are constantly a year or more behind with transfers think about recent seasons where they needed a centre-back a holding midfielder a striker or a left back they only seem to identify one or two players for a position and if they don't don't get them, they don't get anyone. I'm sure there's more going on behind the scenes, but it can't be that hard to tell when a player is good and then just pay the going rate or the release clause for them. Spotting an undervalued player is hard, but City rarely do that. Um, and Stephen, I think it's an, an interesting balance, this one, because on the whole, I'd say City's transfer policy is, is pretty good because they very rarely get taken for a ride these days and, and they don't they don't overpay. Um, but, you know, you, you look back over the years, there's been, you know, every summer since the year dot, they've wanted a left back and they haven't got one. This summer might be different. Um, there was the time, as uh, as David says, they wanted a, a centre half and they didn't get one. They they they've wanted a holding midfielder and they had to wait another year to get Rodri. It, it does seem like they that they go all in for one target and if they don't get them, so be it. I think I think the disconnect we have is what we think we should be done as fans and what they think should be done as the, as the boardroom. Um, and I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong way, but but we look at around and I think it often comes from the squad numbers. We look around and go, look, they've got 24 players, we've got 20. That's not that's not right, you know. And we presume less is therefore inferior. But uh, I think we really struggle to put get into our headspace as fans that this is essentially. It's by choice. And if they're making that choice, they've done it for a reason. And Guardiola just quite famously, he said it many times, but it still doesn't sink in. He, he likes a smaller squad. And look, if Pep Guardiola says, I want a smaller squad, you give him a smaller squad. It's as simple as that, really. you know. And uh, I guess he will probably say, look, we may be a player too short here or there, but everyone's happy. And that, to me, is worth a few, four, three or four players. And I think fundamentally, it comes down to that. And and also going back to the, the identifying targets thing is, Look, if it was that easy, you could put any player to play for Guardiola. There'd be loads and loads of players, but there, there simply isn't. You know, like uh, we're, we're we're trying to find players who have potential, not just to be very good, but to be 
Premier League all timers. It really is as simple as that. We're looking for players who can replace greats, you know, great footballers. We've been trying to replace the likes of Fernandinho, you know, David Silva, Sergio Aguero. You can't just pick up any random player. You're looking for such a um, such a honed skill set, and you're looking for the not players that are just talented as well, because there's so many players that are talented but then don't have the right mentality and so on. And you're looking for such a well-rounded picture that. It will take a little bit longer, but ultimately, I think the proof is in you know the, the pudding, and, and we've got players of the quality of Harland and Rodri, and um, hopefully Sergio Gomez will be something quite similar. But even Ruben Diaz with the Vincent Company replacement, and look, we, we would all agree in hindsight that they were right to wait for the quality. And City think about these things in years in advance, and as fans, we think about Saturday and Sunday, and then Wednesday, and. But we're not really thinking ahead that far, so it's really hard for us because we're in such a we, we're on the on the front line, so to speak, dealing with the, the constant back and forth of the fans and the banner and all that kind of stuff, and we're trying to defend it, thinking about the next weekend, whereas they're trying to plan a dynasty, you know. And so I, I think we probably get distracted a little bit by the here and now, and not necessarily the future. And I, I've, I've, I guess I just trust City to do it because they get it right, you know. No one's going to get yeah. it right 100% of the time. It's, it's impossible. It's literally impossible. Um, but they get it right so often and it comes down to them knowing when to say no and when to say yes. And that is one of the hardest things to do in football, you know, trusting your yeah. gut and getting it right. And City have proven time and time again that they are probably the best in the world at it. And look, ultimately, uh, yeah, like going back to the first point about is that actually, is it, is it good coaching masking if something like that I can't remember exactly what the point was but you know is our recruitment poor but we're masked by essentially by Pep no because look if Pep does what he does then we give him the right players it's as simple as that you know Yeah. so I think we get it right and I'm not going to complain about the odd, the odd mistake here and there I'm just thinking though John if, if City I mean I, I think a lot of City fans will say that they dodged a bullet by not getting Maguire that year for instance um, but if, if City thought he was he was the man to do it why not just pay the extra 10 million to get to get him out of um out of Leicester why not pay the extra 10 million that that Brighton wanted for for Kukurea that sort of thing um ultimately it you know it, it means that in in years to come when City go in for a target clubs know that they just can't go well can't slap any old number on and, and expect City to pay it don't they yeah definitely um I mean I wonder Harry Maguire is sliding doors moment when he had the choice you know what he must think now he, he, he must just, he just must <laughs> just sit there in a darkened room thinking, why did I choose United? Um, because I, I, I think the simple fact is that he would have been a better player if he'd come to City. You know, he he was signed on the back of a, a really impressive tournament for England, and the, the the potential was there for him to to be the you know a really good centre back, and he's he, he made the wrong choice really. Uh, and and to go right back to the beginning of the show. This is a, this is going back to patronising Manchester United. Really, you look at their transfer targets. They want Frankie De Jong, can't get it done, and then they've gone to like Rabio and Casemiro and other central. They're not similar players. They're, they're going so from one. It's so different. Yeah, one one's different style of holding midfielder to another. Um, whereas, okay, I think it was a big. You know, on the outside, it looked a big risk to go when City missed out on Kane to not go for a strike and to have nobody, um, you know, they won the league and almost beat the <laughs> Champions League final. Um, so maybe that is Pep masking those missing out on transfer targets. Um, but 
the alternative was would be to get a striker that he didn't want, um, and who wasn't a good fit. Yeah, I'm just trying so, to think of the, I'm, I'm trying to think of the last kind of transfers that City have got wrong because I mean, Stephen, you said you said it's you know that that they get them wrong occasionally, and I, I genuinely like Angelino maybe. Like, yeah, it's little things like that, isn't it? It's a little throwaway ones. Obviously, there's the left back that we don't want to talk about, but that, like that, that I mean, that was probably. I feel like that was you know maybe we profiled him wrong, you know, as a person yeah. or whatever stuff. So, but but then yeah, rarely it's the little, it's the little ones here and there, isn't it? You know, uh, Claudio Bravo. Maybe, like, yeah, it's a long maybe, time ago now. Yeah, it's people like that. Maybe Danila was probably not quite as good as we expect him to be, but he was a squad player, and then you know he was used for Cancelo. So who really cares? And Nelito, Claudio, Bravo, people are like that, but uh, Mangala has something like that I don't know but you know like it's, it's pre-Pep really isn't it I mean yeah. but maybe yeah I don't know how much Pep has, has to do with this I'm sure he does actually Pep's so hands-on that I can't really see him taking a back seat but um, maybe yeah like since maybe we've just got the dream team there you know Pep with Cheeky and Omar for, for Anna so maybe they're, they're just very good at this now and they've found a system so 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 fluid in terms of it's so interchangeable for the players that everyone knows what they're doing. That as long as they get the right quality of play, it works. But yeah, you're right. Like the mistakes have been like they just they don't really happen anymore, do they? You know, like yeah, few uh, and far between. No. Yeah, uh, John. Let's finish the show with uh, a quick word on the remainder of the transfer window because now we know that Bernardo Silva probably ninety nine point nine nine percent isn't going anywhere. Um, is that City done and dusted? Do you think for business now, uh, in and out? Yeah, I think I think first team wise, um, I think that's. Pretty much it. I think, uh, as, you know, I, as long as Bernardo stays, um, there shouldn't be any movement within the first team squad. And then it's going to be looking at potential loan deals, uh, you know, whether it's kind of CFG players or maybe academy players. Um, but even, even a lot of that is sorted now. So um, I think, I think the, I think the, the best thing is is when the window shuts, and then that will. Then we know, that, don't we? That'll yeah. be the end of yeah. it. Yeah. Well, it's time to end the show because, uh, not least, uh, because uh, my cat's decided that she wants to get involved with the recording and he's currently investigating the microphone. So uh, that's the end <laughs> of this week's Blue Moon podcast. Thank you very much to my guests, Jonathan Smith. Cheers. And Stephen McInerney. Thanks for having me, mate. Uh, if you'd like some more, then there's a bonus podcast each Monday for Patreon backers. This week's was the first in a new series called Season Flashback. Me and John here have been reminiscent about the 98-99 season, and uh, it was fun, wasn't it, John? It was great. <laughs> yeah, nice to look back at some of those memories when it was a different city. It's still, it's still fun. <laughs> Just a little yeah, bit. Very different. Uh, here's a short clip. Going into the season, and for mo- for a lot a large parts of the season, it was... Oh, well, you know, this is fun. You know, we're going to grounds not been before. We're having good days out, you know, things like that. But like I say, at certain points in the season where you, you just thought, shit, this is this is real, this. Yeah. If they don't go up this season, the club is in big trouble. They, they, financially, they were in a, in a mess. Um, squad-wise, you know, they had all sorts of players from different managers. So when that York City game came round... Like you say, it was on the back of um, a defeat and three draws, um, and then another defeat. At, at, you know, York City. Goodness me. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a moment where you thought, I, f- I don't know if they, I don't know if they're even going to make the playoffs. Never mind that promotion spot. Have you kept your tickets stubbed for that, just as proof? <laughs> Do you know what? I, I was. I have got a few ticket stubs, and I've got a few from that season. And York isn't in there. Oh, man. So uh, there's always going to be people go, oh, yeah, 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 York, yeah. 
So no, I haven't got it. That was a clip of this week's Patreon bonus show. It's available now for everyone who supports the show on any of our tiers. Take a look at patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast for more info or to sign up. I'll be back next week to review the game with Newcastle, so I will see you then. Take care. Thank you.